Thanks, Rick. Well, over these next few weeks, we're tackling the book of Revelation. Uh, no small challenge, no small challenge for a lot of reasons. One is we're only doing it partially, so it's going to leave a lot kind of unsaid. We're looking at, last week we looked at chapter 1, and over the next uh, seven weeks, the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But it's a challenge because I think all of us have heard something about the book of Revelation. Some of us have made it uh, a major point of study and so on. But I, th I think sometimes we sort of lose sight of the main, the main picture. And so my goal in doing this is, is kind of twofold. One is just to go back to the book of Revelation. What does it say? Uh, so much around the book of Revelation is, is people filling in the blanks and, and filling in the gaps and helping us try to understand what this image is or what this symbol is all about. And so part of my is just to go back and to, to read the Word of God. And in reading the Word of God, realize that all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable for us, and it teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us in righteousness. And these letters to the churches are about correction and encouragement and training and teaching, and so there's commendation and there's correction and there's encouragement and there's challenge and there's correction. So much like all of Scripture, these, these passages that we'll be looking at, I hope we will take them to heart for teaching, for correction, and for our, for our training. Just before that passage about the Word of God being inspired, the Apostle Paul says, the Holy Scriptures are all able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. I don't think we can ever get enough wisdom. Um, wisdom is an ongoing pursuit, I hope, for all of us. The Bible says, teach a wise person and they will be wiser still. So my goal is that we will kind of just allow the Word of God to be the Word of God and try and take some of the frills and some of the extras that have maybe been attached to it and allow the Word of God to speak for itself. The background to the book of Revelation begins, as we saw last week, in Revelation chapter 1 with the vision vision of Jesus. And John is in exile on the island of Patmos, a little volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. And he's in exile and he has this vision of Jesus and the greatness and the uniqueness and the grandeur of who Jesus is. And that sort of captivates him. It overwhelms him. So he falls down to worship the angel. And the angel says, no, don't worship me. We're here to worship Jesus. And so from the vision of Christ, it goes to the letters to the seven churches. And then it goes to sort of the opening of the vision of God's plan being worked out. In some ways, the phrase from the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is kind of what the book of Revelation is about, because so much of it takes place outside of the earth, takes place in heaven, and then it's, it's the purposes of God's being, being worked out on earth, so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you come to the seven letters in the, in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, it's kind of like a circuit. There, there's, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the Roman roads in that day and age were phenomenal. Uh, estimates are that there were about 45,000 miles of Roman roads going throughout the Roman Empire. And to put that in context, there's about 45,000 miles of interstate in the United States. Just in case you think back in the day was back in the day, um, they were pretty mobile. And so the seven letters to the seven churches are in this circuit that starts in Ephesus, goes to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And those are the seven churches, and that's the circuit 
that the letters and the, the messengers would have taken. And so in each of these letters to the seven churches, it goes back to chapter 1, to this vision of Jesus that's so important because that's sort of the springboard, that's the opening to each of the letters. And then there's something about the local situation. So this week we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, and it's about the city of Ephesus. City of Ephesus, now this area that we're in is what we would call Turkey, okay? Uh, interestingly enough, back about 10 years ago, uh, the Alliance, we had our General Assembly, and I believe it was here in a place called Italia. Um, it's kind of neat to just have that experience in the country of Turkey and in this area surrounded where the early church uh, blossomed and flourished. So the city of Ephesus itself, if we could just focus in on the city of Ephesus, um, is in what was called Asia Minor. It's in what we would call the country of Turkey. Now, the city of Ephesus probably had a population, well, it's about the size of Regina or Saskatoon. Uh, around the 200,000 mark is sort of the uh, estimated size of the city of Ephesus at the end of the first century. And it, it was the third um, largest city uh, in the Roman Empire. It was sometimes described as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And it was known for a couple of things. It was known for what's called the Library of Celsus. Um, I love libraries. I could tell you a couple of library stories. Uh, the Library of Celsus was also a cemetery. It's okay to snicker, those of you who don't like libraries as much as I do. But the aerial photograph here gives you an idea of the scope and the size of this, uh, this structure. Uh, the Library of Celsus was one of the uh, major buildings. Another one was the Temple of Hadrian. Hadrian was one of the Roman Empire's. And so there's the Temple of Hadrian, and there's a, a reconstructed idea of what the Temple of Hadrian looked like. But the more, more familiar one is the Temple of Artemis, um, one of the early seven wonders of the world, and then a reconstructed version of what the Temple of Artemis uh, looked like. Uh, yes, it could fit inside Mosaic Stadium, but it's bigger than the green part of Mosaic Stadium, if you want just kind of a, a scope of it, and probably 60 feet high. So what was the city of Eph what was it like to be a church in the city of Ephesus? Well, it estimated about 10 to 12 house churches in the city of Ephesus. They didn't have church buildings back then, right? So they met in houses. And probably a house could accommodate maybe 25 to 40 people in a house church. So it was probably in at this time at the end of the first century, and conservatively speaking, 10 to 12 house churches scattered around the city of Ephesus. So this letter would be delivered by the messenger and read in each of the house churches that would gather on, on the first day of the week for worship. As I said, Ephesus, in, as far as the, the country of Asia Minor, the country of Turkey is concerned, was the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. That was the inscriptions that you'd find on different parts of, of Ephesus. So it was a pretty significant city. Interestingly enough, because of the earthquakes and because of other, other conditions, the city of Ephesus, as you saw, was on the coastline. Um, the harbor would silt up, and they'd have to dredge the harbor, and they'd have to clear the harbor. The city of Ephesus was kind of a boomer-bust kind of city. Uh, they, they had times when everything worked very well. An earthquake would come and just wipe out the city, and then they'd have to start from scratch again. In fact, the city itself was relocated, it looks like, three times historically. Um, I think we can identify a little bit with a boomer-bust city. 
city of Ephesus is really important in the New Testament. Um, Paul spends about two years in the city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19. Uh, certain letters are written um, from the city of Ephesus. First Corinthians is written from Ephesus. Philippians is written from Ephesus. Um, the letter to the Ephesians is written to the Christians in Ephesus. First uh, Timothy 1 and 2 is written to Timothy, who is where? Timothy's in Ephesus. So it's a pretty significant church. And then when you get to John's writing, John's gospel and John's letters, there is an element of Ephesus in the background, in the historical records that say uh, both John the Apostle and John the Elder were part of the city of Ephesus. So I say all that to say it's a pretty significant situation. It's a pretty significant, pretty significant city, both um, geographically, socially, but also biblically. Ephesus is a pretty uh, significant uh, city. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2. If you're working out of the Bible that are on the pews, page 1108, sorry, page 1107, page 1107 in the Blue Bibles, or Revelation chapter 2, and let's read the letter to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we need to stop there for a minute because right away we got to go, okay, what do the seven stars mean and what do the seven lampstands mean? Go back to verse uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Verse 20 of chapter 1. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven, so, so the picture goes back to Jesus, are the, the seven angels, the seven sometimes translated messengers. So the seven stars are in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands are the churches. Verse 20 of chapter 1. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, so it, it's a picture of Jesus walking and living amongst the church. So, so this letter is coming to the church, but it's not like Jesus doesn't know what's going on. He's already there. He's already in the midst of the lampstands. If you were to go back to chapter 1, uh, verse 12, when John has this vision of Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Those represent the churches. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down. So, so this whole image of Jesus starts with this picture of Jesus among the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. The stars are the angels representing those churches. And the picture is that Jesus is in the midst of those congregations. Verse 2, Revelation 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered. Second time he said that. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. So that's the, the commendation. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, to those who overcome, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we've got the image of Christ, the seven stars in his right hand, the seven golden lampstands. We understand the commendation, the perseverance, their endurance, their doctrinal purity, and over and over in the letters, that idea of perseverance, of hanging in there, of holding on, not caving in to the pressures around them, not succumbing to some accommodation, to some other um, worldview, is crucial. And it repeats itself in the other letters as well. But each city has its own specifics related to their situation. The danger of compromise, the danger of assimilation, the danger of what's called syncretism, of taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and putting it together and saying, this is, this is the God we worship, is a constant danger. But there's no question that the Ephesians, the Ephesian churches, um, they knew where to draw the line. Doctrinal purity was important to them. They knew how to, how to identify a false apostle. Apostles, this, this road system of the Romans was, was great for not only the word of God getting around, but all other kinds of word got around too. And so there's all kinds of itinerants and all kinds of travelers, and, and it was really important for the church at Ephesus to be able to distinguish a true apostle from a false apostle. And they were very, apparently very good at it. But then after this commendation comes the rebuke. Verse 4, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So sometimes the question is, well, what? Is it the love of God? Is it the love of neighbor? Is it the love of God? Is it the love of their brothers? Which, you know, what, what kind of love have they forsaken? Well, I think a good case can be made that both work together, Right? Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first. In other words, they're equal. They're on the same plane. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I think a good case can be made that, that both go together. And so they're forsaken their first love. If, if they're not loving God, then they're obviously not loving their neighbor. And if they're not loving their neighbor, then truly they're not loving God. First John chapter 4, right? We show that we have the love of God. How does John say it? First John 4.19, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. So, so again, both, both come into play here. So it seems like, here's what it seems like. This, this group of churches in Ephesus were good at house cleaning, but not at housekeeping. They were good at keeping the house clean, but they didn't allow the house to be a house. It seems like they were heavy on truth, making sure everything was right and accurate and all the ducks were in a row, but it seems like they were light on grace. Oh, they, they were intolerant. How, how is that worded? What is it, verse 3? Um, you cannot... Verse 2, you cannot tolerate wicked people. They were good at putting people to the test. And as 
Verse 6 says they hated this group called the Nicolaitans. The trouble with that, and, and, and God, for some reason, hated this group, the Nicolaitans, but we have no historical record to understand who these were. What did they teach? What was their doctrine? What was so wrong about We don't know. But it seems like the church in Ephesus was, was heavy on truth and light on grace. They were good at separating, sorting the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats, but when it came to being together, they weren't very good at that. <laughs> the word in that one song um, this morning about being calloused might be a good description of what the church at Ephesus was like. Or they, they knew how to line things up, but when it came to loving one another and loving their neighbor. You see, John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that, I think, is always the challenge for us. How do we keep those two intentions? Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. How do we keep grace and truth in tension, in that, in that functional, healthy tension? Well, the, the solution laid out here in the letter is, is kind of a three-pronged solution. Remember, repent, and act. Verse 5, the Blue Bible says, consider how far you have fallen. Uh, New International Version says, remember how far you have fallen. Remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember, repent, and act. Remember the things you did at first. Otherwise... And here's why I think this is so important to understand what's going on here. Verse 5b, last part of verse 5. If you do not repent, and every, every letter has an aspect of repentance, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. I'm just kind of each letter as it comes up kind of landing on one thing, and we'll um, add to it as we, as we look at each letter. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, that's pretty serious, because what? The lampstand is the church. The lampstand is the church in Ephesus, those 10 or 12 or however many house churches meeting in Ephesus. If you do not repent, if you do not make this right, if you do not return to those first things you did, I will remove your lampstand. Pretty serious. Jesus is saying, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to turn off the lights. I'm going to remove your... It's, not, it, it's the whole thing, right? It, it's the lampstand is gone. And when the lampstand is gone, there is no church. It's pretty serious. If, as, as good as they were at keeping a clean house... If they didn't correct these things, Jesus was going to come and turn the lights out. So that's why I think this is important. I think that that's the hub here. And I think if we understand what the lampstand is, we understand the lampstand is the church. 
Jesus is saying, unless you get this right, I'm going to shut you down. That's, that's why this sort of grace and truth thing is so important. And I think it's so important that we understand how to, how to balance it and how to keep both in a healthy tension. They had forsaken their first love. A failure to love God, a failure to love their neighbor, a failure to love one another. You have forsaken your first love. You have failed to love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? I suspect most of you know the story, right? When Jesus uh, says that to someone and he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do. They hated each other. They despised each other. They wouldn't travel through each other's country. They'd go in a circuitous around bypass. They'd do a bypass around Samaria to avoid heading contact with the Samaritan. That's how much they hated each other. And the, the neighbor in the story is what? The Samaritan. Loving our neighbor. Let's start there. Maybe there's something for us to analyze church here in terms of loving our neighbor. Talk about boom and bust. You guys understand boom and bust? The challenges it is for people. If not a challenge for you, maybe for your neighbor. Maybe the foreclosure sign is on the house next door to you. Maybe you know somebody who is out of work. Maybe you know some uh, single parent trying to just make ends meet. Okay, So I, I think there's lots of opportunity for us in Estevan to love our neighbor. I mean, what we're doing on, on the, a week Saturday with the, uh, the meals, not just for EAC people, but for your neighbors as they have a need. I mean, I've enjoyed seeing how that food has sort of been distributed. But how much more is there that we, as a church, can do in Estevan in a, in a bust environment and in the challenge of the next 10 years? What's, what's that going to look like? Are we, are, are our lenses... Are we looking through lenses of love, or are we looking through lenses of judgment and criticism and condemnation? And oh, they, they could do better if they had only done that. If they didn't have so much debt, if they didn't buy that whatever, they'd been okay. Or do we look with love? I think the needs are around us. I don't think that's... We've talked at the board meeting about warm welcome and the needs of warm welcome, and, and the missions committee has kind of kept that in front of us a little bit as well, but the challenge of keeping that going and the challenge of caring for the poor, and that's not everybody's cup of tea. In, in a, in a, it's not like everybody has to do it, but if that's how God has wired you, you need to be free to do that. And the church needs to encourage you to do that. No question, Esteban has needy people, overwhelmed with debt, maybe homeless, on social assistance, widows, single-parent families. Who's my neighbor? But then what about who is my brother or sister? Let's change that from who is my neighbor to who is my brother or sister. Because if you, if you read First John carefully, he's talking about hating your brother. So he's talking about fellow Christians, fellow believers. So if we go from loving your neighbor, because every human being is created in the image of God, every human being is my neighbor... Let's talk about loving my brother and sister. Interesting. Providentially, 
serendipitously, this last week was the uh, week of prayer for Christian unity. There are a variety of views on Christian unity. It stirs up a variety of emotions. I've been in churches where it stirs up a variety of emotions, and I'm not saying that it's something EAC should do. I'm just saying it just so happens. I find it interesting when God kind of does those kind of things, right? The thing we need to talk about here in Ephesus, and their problem with their lack of love, and here it is, it just ended yesterday, the day of prayer for Christian unity. I spent 20 of my 40 years in small towns and in small town churches. And part of the responsibility in small towns is, is ministerials, and, and there's, there's gatherings of the various churches, and there's always a tension about what do we participate in and what do we not participate in. And I would have a certain view of what we could participate in, and my board would have a different view of what we could participate in. I would think we should. They would think we shouldn't. I would think we shouldn't. They would think we shouldn't. Two stories. Summer of 1992, I had resigned from uh, the Associate Gospel Church Sharon and I had been at since 1980, 1981. Summer of 92, I resigned, and I handed my resignation in June. And somewhere in the summer, because I was done at the end of August, somewhere in the summer, I ran into Marie Kirkmeyer. Marie Kirkmeyer attended the Anglican Church in Blind River. I forget where I met Marie, probably at the bakery across from the post office, because I go to the post office to get my mail, I always go to get some sugar donuts at the bakery. Anyway, I met Marie downtown or something down the street, and Marie said, hey Larry, I heard you're finished at the church. You are welcome to come and join us for worship at the Anglican Church any Sunday you want. Uh, well, that's cool. Thanks, Marie. Interesting thing about Marie was her husband, Wilf, was an English teacher at the high school. And he was just nasty with our Christian kids. He was just, he knew, well, small town, 4,000 people, right? Everybody knows who goes where. He knew which kids attended the Baptist church and the AGC church, and he had a bit of a reputation for giving our kids the gears. Anyway, Marie says to me, you're welcome to come and join us for church. So after I was done at, at the church, I went. I think it was one of the Sundays in September. I went to the Anglican church. I Never been in an Anglican church for a service. I've been there for ministerial meetings with Father Bill, who was an evangelical Anglican. I'd been to ministerial meetings, but I'd never been to a service there. So I went. Sharon didn't come with me. I went by myself, kind of snuck in the back and sat in the back trying to be innocuous, right? So we're going through the service, and we're using the Book of Common Prayer. I'd never opened up the Book of Common Prayer. BCP, if you're an Anglican, you just say BCP. You don't need to use the whole thing. Reading the Book of Common Prayer, and it's like, I have never heard the word repentance used so much in my life. Prayers of confession, and it, just, it struck me as we're reading these, and I know, I know the shots that we evangelicals give to Anglicans about, yeah, they're just reading them, and somebody else wrote them, and they're not from the heart, and so on. But I got to tell you, I came out of that, and it was like the word repentance was just front and center for me. That was back in 1992. 
back on January 12th this year, two weeks ago, um, a friend of mine from Living Hope Church in Regina, uh, Stuart's his name, Stuart doesn't have a car, and I'd taken Stuart back in the fall, I'd taken him to First Presbyterian Church because he had told me that's where his mom and dad had attended when he was little. And so we went for a visit to First Presbyterian Church because he knew something about his mom and dad. There was a stained glass window in First Presbyterian Church, right on Albert and 14th there. Stained glass window in his mom and dad's name, and there was a pew in their name, and there was a huge oak table that they had donated to the church. So we went, I said, let's go see what, let's see, go see if we can find that stained glass window. So it turns out when we went there, we found out that January 12th was going to be the 95th anniversary of First Presbyterian Church. So I said to Stuart, you want to come back for the anniversary service? So we did. So a couple weeks ago, when Pastor Craig was here, candidate, I was at the Anakin Church in Regina. Let me tell you the contents of the service. It started with a call to worship. And because it was the baptism of Jesus sort of theme Sunday, it started with a call to worship that went back to the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of creation, to the, to the flood and the rainbow, uh, to Jesus in the waters of Mary's womb, to Jesus and the woman at the well, um, that was, that was called a worship. Then we had a prayer of confession. Then we did the Lord's Prayer. Then we read Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Then later on, we read Acts 10, 34 to 43. Then later on, we read Matthew 3, 13 to 17. And just a little after that, we sang the doxology. And some of you don't even know what I mean when I say doxology. Thanks to Rick, we sang a little bit this morning. What am I saying? Why am I saying that? Those experiences shape my perception of what God is calling us to do as a church in Revelation chapter 2. Those experiences shape my perception. Your experiences shape your perception. You may have a very different view of the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church or, or the Catholic Church. And I'm not telling you what you need to think about those things. I just want us to realize that our experience has a lot to do with shaping our perceptions. All that scripture we read in, in First Presbyterian Church two weeks ago, I, I wrote down, we read so much scripture, I think it would put any evangelical church to shame. So we have different comfort zones because of our experiences. But the question is, who is my brother and sister in Christ? Because I'm supposed to love my neighbor, and I'm supposed to love my brother or sister, because John is very clear. First John chapter 4, I'll say it again. You can't say you love God and hate your brother or sister. So who is my brother or sister in Christ? Even within the Alliance Church, there's challenges, right? Because in the Alliance Church, and, and we went through this last fall, Alliance, the Christian Missionary Alliance allows two views on the role of women. The complementarian view and the egalitarian view. And there's two views of women allowed, and one allows women to be elders and one doesn't, and the churches are free to choose. And so within that context, within the alliance, there is openness. Without judgment and without criticism. And our district superintendent was very clear on how those two are to be equal within the Christian Missionary Alliance. One is not to put down the other because of their view, but each church is free to recognize what view they 
will work with. So that's within the alliance. Then what are, are there other followers of Jesus in other denominations? Are there followers of Jesus in the Anglican Church? Are there followers of Jesus in the Presbyterian Church? Are there followers of Jesus in the Catholic Church? Is there followers of Jesus in the Orthodox or the Coptic Church? See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. The lights will be turned out unless they return to their first love. And the, the things they're commended for are good, but there's this whole gap. It's like they're, they're half. They're half a church. And personally, I don't want to minimize Jesus' call for unity. In John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus says, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. May they be brought, they, all the followers of Jesus, irrespective before denominations come along. I am a Cardinals fan. This is the football Cardinals. But there's the baseball Cardinals. So whether it's the Arizona Cardinals or the St. Louis Cardinals, I'm a Cardinals fan. One of my profs had a good way of distinguishing where to draw the line in terms of doctrine and dogma and those kind of things. And Professor Osborne, and I, actually I'm using his commentary on Revelation for some sort of the background as we go through this, but Professor Osborne would say there's, there, there's cardinal doctrines. That's why the cardinal happened. There's cardinal doctrines and there's non-cardinal doctrines. There's essential doctrines and there's non-essential doctrines. There's primary doctrines and there's secondary doctrines, right? What are, prime, what are cardinal doctrines? Well, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, it's a doctrinal statement. In the Christian Mission Alliance, and in any other, the cardinal doctrines would be your doctrinals. That's what makes your church what it is, right? Your doctrinal statement. That's what makes your church different, and your denomination different. That's why we have different denominations, right? But your cardinal doctrines are your doctrinal statement. Rarely, rarely do people leave a church because of cardinal doctrines. Rarely do people get upset with their leadership because of cardinal doctrines. I do not want to minimize Jesus' call for unity. I want to live like Jesus, full of grace and truth. I got to recognize that I am in the world, but I am not of or from the world. That my light needs to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Philippians chapter 2. Let your light shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse... Your light needs to shine in the middle, in the, in the thick of it. Go back to my Blind River days and that Anglican invitation I got from Marie. Um, the church that I pastored there had sort of grown out of... Well, it was a breakaway group. A Sunday school teacher had taken her, her Sunday school class of kids out of the Baptist church and just didn't like what was going on in the Baptist church. And so she started a, a separator group, and away they, they went, and they started their own thing, and it became Calvary Gospel Church. When I got to Calvary Gospel Church, the patriarch of the church, um, my first board meeting, uh, there was myself, and I think it was five other people on the board. Four of them had the same last name. 
The patriarch had a line. He said, they know where we stand. And over time, that meant way over here, right? Uninvolved, unengaged, unconcerned. I, I read Philippians chapter 2. Your light has to shine in the midst of. Your light has to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I think even more so because the influence of the church, Allison and I were having this conversation of, of how things have changed and, and, and the influence of the church, the significance of the credibility of the church and, and faith in God has changed. The influence of the church is waiting, even in Estevan. You ever wonder how many people drive by here on a Sunday and go, what in the world are those people doing there? What a, they're crazy. They're nutcases going to church on. What, what's that all about? You ever, you ever wonder how many people drive by and just, because that, that's the way, that's the way it's going, right? People drive by and go, what in the world? So there's our reputation about where we stand. There's our reputation more about who, who Jesus is. Do we stand isolated, uninvolved, and unconcerned? That's my take on it. And I realize that, that you have, there's probably as many views on this as there are people in this room, and, that, and that's okay. But I think the point of Revelation chapter 2 is, remember from whence you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. I call it the... Ephesian corrective. I call it the Ephesus corrective. Galatians, and we're just going to go really quickly through these. Galatians chapter 3, um, and most of them I'm not even going to refer to, but Galatians chapter 3, I think we need to refer to. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, page 1076. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So in Christ, you are all, not just you all in this room, you all in the world who are followers of Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So Paul says two things are important, faith and baptism. Baptism is your initiation into who, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Faith is, makes you right with God and, and makes you a follower of Jesus. But the two, faith and baptism, go together. Here's another thing about the Alliance. Last year at General Assembly, and this relates to me talking about going to an Anglican church and going to a Presbyterian church, last General Assembly two years ago, a new policy was put in place in the, in the Alliance Church where a church board, if someone applied for membership and they were baptized as an infant, it was up to the board to determine the candidacy of that person for membership irrespective of infant baptism. So there's, there's another cross-denominational debate, right? Baptism, infant baptism, and so on. Um, it's at the discretion of each board to discern if an individual applies for membership, if their infant baptism uh, is part of the package that allows them to become members. Talk about things that divide us, and then that's it. I like that about the alliance. You might not like that about the I find us in the middle, and I like being in the middle. 
Because I think that forces us to deal well with grace and truth and, and, and discern together and work through that together. I'm very comfortable in the alliance. Probably my history gives you a bit of an indication why. Read on, verse 28. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Another place to go would be Romans chapter 14, where Paul talks about the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and he talks about things like what you do on the Sabbath, uh, what kind of food you eat, and about drinking. And in fact, in Romans chapter 14, Paul says at one point, hey, one of these things might be a sin for you, but not a sin for them. I think some of us go, what? If it's a sin for me, isn't it a sin for somebody else? Paul says no. Read Romans 14. Now be careful what you do with that. Don't use that as an excuse. And then the letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks in chapter 4 about keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. I love the King James Version. See then that you walk circumspectly. That's what Revelation is trying to tell us to do. Walk, paying attention to what we're doing and, and the implications of what we're, we're doing. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The enemy is not a fellow human being. The enemy is not a fellow believer. The enemy is not even a sinner. I think we can do better. I think there's room to do better. Now, later on in some letters, we're going to talk about where, where to draw lines and how we need to draw lines. So it's not just one or the other. It's grace and truth. And there's other letters we'll talk about where we have become too much a part of the world. And we need to pull back. But I think on this, I think we can do better. I think we need to give each other freedom to express unity, whatever that might look like. It might not look the same. I had a great time at the seminar at the Anglican Church last Saturday. That might not be something you would want to do. But if you want to study the book of Acts, I don't care what church it's in. The guy who's teaching it is fully qualified, and it's going, I want to learn. Freedom to express unity. I think it's helpful for us to be a little more positive, to focus on what unites us as opposed to what makes us different. Do we attract people to Jesus? Does the imminent return of Jesus make any difference in how I treat my neighbor or how I treat my brother or sister in Christ? The promise is that if it does, I will eat, Jesus says, from the tree of life. There's no better fruit in all the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of us. It wouldn't be just what I said this morning. I pray that it would be what the Berean Christians did when Paul preached there. They went and searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. Not because I said it, not because someone else said it, but Lord, that you would allow your word 
that you would allow your word to, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to um, shape us into the kind of people you want us to be. For the purpose of the world knowing that you have sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.